You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Henry Pope, who is running Phoenix and Elixir in production to power a site called Six Degrees of Separation. Henry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So instead of me fumbling around with explaining what SixDOS is, do you want to first introduce yourself and then let people know a little bit more about what SixDOS is? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm Henry Pope and I run a Elixir consultancy here in Dallas. Um, we were actually one of the first ones to, to open up here. And so we, we do mostly mobile and web apps, but Six Degrees of Separation is one of our latest clients to go into production. And it's, it's a really exciting tool. So imagine if you want an introduction to somebody, what's the best way to, to get that introduction? Obviously, you want to find friends that you know that might know them, which really Six Dots makes that super, super easy to do that. Literally, people who join the platform upload their contacts and it intelligently scores how well you know the people. And then you join teams of friends and coworkers and you look at their network and see, oh, they know that person that I'm trying to meet. Well, let me contact them and see if I can get an introduction set up. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun tool to use. I've actually already just going through my own network. I found people that I didn't know how they knew other people. And I was like, wow, that's small world, you know? Yeah, so now I understand why it's called that. What was that one game? Like, was it Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon or is it Seven Degrees? No, it's Six Degrees, yeah. No, that's that's absolutely where the name name came from. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny how, like, I don't know if you classify that as, like, a meme or whatever, but as soon as, like, I made that realization, now the whole thing makes sense. That's cool. So you mentioned you worked at a consultancy agency to develop this project. How many people are working on this project? Um, Right now it is about four developers. And that's just on the development side. There's obviously a lot of marketing and salespeople and stuff going on there too. But um, so I I am one of the two lead developers, um, and then we have two others below us that are working on it. There are obviously still features on the roadmap, but things are in production now. Um, we definitely consider it a, a V1 status. Um, obviously, there's always improvements to make, but we've we've got a pretty solid setup right now. So how long has it been up and running for? So it launched back at the end of September around then. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, it's still chugging along. Um, we have about 50 monthly active users right now, it seems like. Uh, mostly salespeople and sales teams that, you know, they all upload their contacts and they're going through each other's networks trying to figure out what's up. So when it came down to it, like, what was your motivation for using Phoenix and Elixir in the first place? Um well, as far as Code Edge, like we've we've now used it for five years. Um, we we adopted Phoenix right as it went 1.0 back in 2015, because we before we used to be a Ruby shop, and I mean Ruby on Rails is great. There's a lot of packages, you know, life is good, but it's not fast and it doesn't scale well unless you you know do a lot of additional work or you pay for a lot of servers in the process. And so we, we found, especially um, with the way the Erlang VM intelligently handles processes that, you know, are taking more CPU, for instance, 
you can actually run a more efficient cluster at high load with fewer servers just because it maximizes the the CPU a lot better. And that's why we've been so happy with Enix because under the hood, it has so many concurrent processes that are accepting connections and it's, it's just a really stable web framework, um, especially being built on Cowboy. Like the whole ecosystem is just fantastic. Yep. So back uh, five years ago when you started with this, was it like, a company-wide decision for you guys to learn Phoenix? Or was it like one person was like, hey, by the way, I learned about this new thing. Maybe we should, you know, check it out. Yeah, so I I had been playing around with Elixir since, um, I guess, the end of 2014. And I, I hadn't built anything major with it yet. So we, we get around. So we, we founded the company back in May of 2015, obviously doing Rails stuff. Later that year, we had a um, project come along that they needed both a REST API and a real-time chat server. And so I was talking to my business partner and I was all like, hey, there's this platform called Phoenix that's got channels on it. We should check it out. And he looked at it and he's all like, wow, this is really great. So we, funny enough, ended up being a hybrid deployment. So we did a REST API in Rails, but then we also built a chat server with Phoenix channels um, for this thing. So we we started out of the gate with a hybrid deployment in our migration to Elixir and Phoenix. But from there, we realized that um, Phoenix as an MVC framework was actually a lot better than Rails. So we might as well just, you know, keep all of it in the same ecosystem and then continue from there. Right. So now for the last couple of years, you've been developing most of your apps with Phoenix and Elixir and it's been smooth sailing. Yep, absolutely. Um, there's been, it has been a journey, uh, especially with umbrella apps. Cause we, we now consider that like the, the weird story arc of umbrella apps. We, we no longer use them anymore. Oh yeah. What happened with that? Initially in our development processes, we were doing monolith type applications and stuff. And I've, I mean, yes, monoliths do have their benefits, but I I ascribe to the triple D philosophy. And so I know that, yes, things need to be broken into their own domains, especially back then. Like there was no concept of Phoenix context. It was just like, you know, you knit your Phoenix project. That's, you know, it's got Ecto built in and everything's just kind of there and you're working with it. Uh, when we learned about umbrella apps, at first, it sounded like a good idea, and it did lead to better code um, grouping and organization overall. But really, the big thing, we have a new rule now with our deployments. Every service we write gets, at most, one database. So, And it's real easy to do in Umbrella apps if you want like multiple different repos going. Yeah, that's a really terrible idea. It's bad for CI. It's bad for configuration. There's so many things that can go wrong with it. So we've actually migrated our deployments now. Um, instead of doing an umbrella apps, we actually treat each of those services as a separate repository. So they are their own separate deployments. And that's ultimately... You, sorry to interrupt. When you say repository, you mean like a Git repo? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, currently currently SixDOS is built on six, yeah, six different uh, repositories each independently configured. Um, yeah, it, it seems to work. So we, I mean, obviously the buzzword is microservices and we can say that, yeah, we do microservices, but 
in reality, we do service-oriented architecture. Like if you if you split a project into too many microservices, you've effectively built a monolith just with in independent deployment. And especially if you start to like spaghettify all of the connections between those services, it's, you you have a problem that's even harder to track down than a than a monolith itself. Yeah, for sure. So, do you want to actually maybe give us like a high level overview of what those six repos have? Like, what are the names of them? If you can share that. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so we have account manager, which is like our user management system for registrations and all that. We have contact manager, uh, which is where all the secret sauce lives for, you know, how we do like our data deduplication and, and manage all the contacts that come into the system. We have a contact importer, uh, which does nothing more than like take input, you know, from let's say Google contacts, it'll parse it accordingly. And then it will post it at contact manager saying like, hey, here's a valid cleaned up import. Let's go ahead and run with it. We've got also a report engine, which for right now, all it really does is email dispatch. Um, I guess it keeps it keeps a little bit of metrics cached as well. Um, it's kind of, it's off in its own little world. We didn't really know where we needed email reports to live. So we decided, hey, why not just make a service out of it? And then we've also got a product manager, uh, which does most of our billing and we use we use Stripe under the hood for all our billing and customer management, but product manager is just a nice little glue layer on that to interface with the rest of the uh, rest of the cluster as far as figuring out what's going on. And then really beyond that, we've got little tiny services that do specific things. Um, we use some of the Google APIs under the hood. I can't say which ones because you know part of the secret sauce, but. A lot of those APIs are really expensive if you query them a lot. So I got the bright idea, hey, why don't we just cache the responses, you know? Because we, obviously, at least in our use case, if the data hasn't changed in like three months, it's probably fine. So we can just like keep, you know, we can keep caching those responses. And so that gets its own dedicated Postgres table too. It just saves whatever we were doing and the timestamp of when we did it. And we effectively built our own like API gateway into into Google services, which that's really, really, really cool. Yeah. But now for each of these individual services that you made, do they each have their own isolated database or do you share one database between all of them? Nope. They, they each get their own database. So let's see, product manager, contact importer, and account manager each have a Postgres instance. Contact Manager uses Neo4j under the hood, um, as well as Elasticsearch for um, its data presentation layer. So we wrote we wrote a really really interesting pipeline as far as you know data is coming into the system. We need to clean it up, deduplicate it, and then properly figure out you know like how well does this person know this person, and then save the response in Elasticsearch. So it's been a really long time since I've. Uh even heard the term Neo4j, not because it's like ancient <laughs> technology. I just haven't used graph databases in many projects. Do you want to just give like uh, maybe a TLDR and like what types of problems that database is helping you solve? Yeah. So it's one of those things that when you stumble upon a graph problem, using a graph database becomes such a natural fit. And it just, it, you end up with a system that just feels so right. It makes you happy about it, you know? 
in the case of us, because obviously you you join teams of other users, all those users know contacts, you know contacts too, there's other attributes about the contacts that maybe, let's say you know, but your teammates don't, you need to know how to intelligently follow all of those paths. So that's why Neo4j made such a, you know, strong case for what we were doing, because I mean, ultimately, if we were doing Ecto Postgres joins for all of this, like it, it would be a nightmare, and I would hate my life. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, my eye is twitching just thinking about that. Yeah, no, it's but Neo4j, especially when you when you start to realize that you can do non-linear queries. So it's like, say you needed to match a path, but you only know one of the pieces in that path, then you can like start in the middle of the path and your query goes both directions when you're writing out like the ciphered syntax and all that. Right. And yeah. I think what was ciphered, that was their query language, right? Yeah. It it absolutely, I I, I love cipher. Like, I, I guess when it comes to support with Elixir, do they have their own like a really good Elixir library that you can use or is it like community driven? I forget who made it. It's it's the Bolt Sips package. Um, that's the go-to Neo4j package right now. Um, I know somebody started on an Ecto wrapper for Neo4j. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I guess I could ultimately say best of luck on that because I, I feel like it's not necessarily the correct fit for Ecto, especially with the way that, that non-linear queries work. But I mean, really for us, so we, we use the Bolt Sips package and then we just, um, obviously it supports the parameter interpolation. So we, you know, build our queries and stuff and then execute them with the parameters that we need. Right. So now you have these, you know, couple services up and running. Do they all just communicate with each other over some type of API that you've created? Yeah. So we, um, we have a rule in our deployments such that our services must form a DAG or directed acyclic graph. So that is, if you have two two services that need to talk to each other, then they probably need to be merged into the same service. Each of them currently offer a public API that, um, oh, I mean, we haven't actually even touched on that. We, so we, we use Vue.js for our front ends <laughs> um, okay. for all of this. Yeah, so Phoenix, we use uh, purely Phoenix as a JSON API. Um, Currently, each of these services define their own APIs and their, you know, view knows to look out for them and then assemble data how it needs. Um, there are plans to migrate to an API gateway style because um, we're realizing now DNS configuration is actually kind of a pain, especially if you have to issue six different SSL certificates at a time. Although that said, we, we have that process automated, but I, I would still rather not, you know, have to allocate more than I need, I guess. Really, an API gateway would solve a lot of these problems. But internally on the cluster, um, we use mostly RabbitMQ for notification between them. Obviously, contact importer needs to call the contact manager directly. Um, both manager and importer need to talk to account manager as far as user authentication and all that stuff, just to verify, like, hey, this user ID is valid. But really beyond that, we just use RabbitMQ for events to flow around the system. So if account manager registers a new user, it'll emit the you know user created event and then anybody who needs it just consumes it and updates their own records. So maybe just to like solidify that a little bit for listeners, do you want to just maybe walk through what a request would look like? Let's say someone goes to your system and they 
I don't know, they bring up some form on your site. Do you want to just go through like what APIs it's hitting and like how that page gets rendered, stuff like that? Yeah, so let's let's say you were on the home home connections view. Um, so this is after you've logged in and everything, and you you want to see connections in your network. That actually really only needs to make two requests. Um, and the, this was assuming you were going from a uh, a page reload. It would query out to account manager for some profile information of yours that it would need, but it would also query out to contact manager to get all of your connections um, and all their scores and everything else. So really, um, there's not a whole lot of requests going on per page. Um, Fortunately, the way we've structured our services, things like, let's say I was looking at a list of teams um, that I'm on, really that's an account manager problem. So in that case, you're really just making an account manager query and that's totally okay. And I think that really is the power of Triple D. Like it, you you end up in these natural fits almost um, for how your data flows around. Interesting, yeah, for sure. And it seems like also maybe like how did you guys end up arriving at that solution? Did you plan it out, like theory craft it, and then you just had those services before you started writing one line of code, or or did it kind of just like mold its way into that over time? Um, so Account Manager is one of the oldest services we have at Code Edge. Um, I mean, obviously, it seems like every system needs an, a, a user account registration type thing. So we, I don't know, we, we, we keep kicking it around and reusing it, and it just gets better and better over time. Um, but we realized, especially for the 6DOS project, we, we didn't want to modify Account Manager too much to accommodate 6DOS's requirements. So ultimately, then it became, well, let's create more services, you know, that do their own specific things. Um, early on in the architecture process, um, there were arguments about whether or not import functionality should be merged into Contact Manager, and I fought really hard to make it its own service. And my reasoning was that Contact Manager should exist with its own idea of what a contact looks like, and if you muddy that with, let's say, I don't know, a vCard import or a LinkedIn import, if you muddy it with those implementation details, then it becomes less effective overall at, at what it's trying to do. So we definitely, creating the contact importer service was just, it, it was a really good idea right off the bat, and I'm happy we did it that way. Nice. Yeah, sometimes it's tricky to get those like abstractions correct before you write the code. Yeah, that's the other thing too. You can do triple D wrong. I've done it wrong many a times now. I'm not proud to admit it, but yeah. There's a, I finally learned what an anemic domain model is, and I was all like, oh my god, I've, uh, I've done this way too often. Yeah, I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's basically the idea that if, you're, if your triple D domain is a CRUD application, then you have not applied triple D correctly. That's definitely not what I was thinking initially. Like I was thinking like it was bleeding out or something like that. Well, it effectively is. Like you have a weak, like lifeless service. Like there is no business logic there. It's just literally like create user, update user, delete user. And it's like, okay, well that's that's not a domain. That's just a object manipulation service. Yeah, it would be like a tiny component of potentially a service. You know, it's mm-hmm. like if you go one level down, I guess, like a context or whatever, like a Phoenix context. You know, maybe that just becomes a context and not a whole service of its own. Yeah, no, absolutely. But speaking of context, are you also using those as well? No, it's literally we just start writing module files that do business logic. Like, don't really have to mess with context all that much. 
It's effectively the whole thing is one context. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. It's like, well, if this were a monolith, maybe each of those services would be a context in a different world. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So overall, you're very happy with this setup. Yeah, it's it's been it's been many years in the making. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, like I, I have I have this goal that I know we as developers can build software well. Right now, none of us can build software well. We can only build it slightly less bad than other people. <laughs> It seems like ultimately you have to look at it trends in the industry. And it, it seems like we've oscillated between monoliths to microservices. Now everybody's going back to monoliths or at least a, it seems like a lot of people um, have. But if you look at it, actually the proper solution is somewhere in between. So instead of one giant monolith, let's have five smaller services you know, and then if one of those becomes a monolith, we'll break it and do a couple of services that make sense. There's always, um, I've had this idea, I call it instantaneous complexity. And so regardless of whether or not you're looking at a function or a module or a project or an entire system, if it is too complicated at that scope, then you need to break whatever it is into more pieces. So that, that philosophy taken to its logical conclusion that's exactly why we have the deployment that we have each of these projects are extremely easy to manage and they're very focused about what they do um, some of them are dirtier than others then because you know they they do a lot of things but i couldn't imagine if we like mashed all of this together into one giant phoenix project that would, that would be terrifying yeah Although I guess you had to solve some of your own other problems that arise when you're dealing with multiple services right have you done anything like on your side of things to kind of like help you spin up a new service faster, like some type of like skeleton project that you can just clone and modify or whatever? Yes, absolutely. Um, funny enough, I, I wrote that over Christmas because I was all like, I am tired of, you know, doing the same thing over and over again. We got really good at typing it out by hand, all the modifications and stuff. But I finally, I, I call it the service base template. And you know, just wrote a little bash script that, that clones it and then substitutes a uh, service-based template with whatever name you want to give it. And that's, so when you when you init a project like that, honestly, if I were going to be super fancy, I would do like e-scripts and all that, you know, so you can install like a code edge CLI almost. But for right now, a bash script works. But basically when you, when you init the project, it's fully configured with um, support for private dependencies that we host on our own GitLab instance. Um, we have a lot of those. I, I wish I could open source some of them, but I don't know. It, eventually, maybe. But we've also got all our Kubernetes set up, and just literally everything that we do as a company is like consolidated in this one base template, and it, it works really well. Yeah, that's really cool. So I was working on some client work a while back, Unfortunately, not with Phoenix and Elixir, but we did the exact same thing. Like we just have a bash script to generate, uh, you know, our service that works for that company. It's funny. It's like, you know, it's such a basic thing, but it helps kind of a lot if you're dealing with services on a regular basis. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, um, so we use, we use discord at work and we've got a snippets channel that we're just constantly sharing things. You mentioned using uh view on the front end to maybe switch gears a little bit here for that. Uh, are you using Webpack to manage all that or no? Yeah, no, we're, we're using Webpack. So, um, well, okay. So the Vue project is a completely separate repository. That's important. So we initialized it with the, the Vue CLI and everything. It has absolutely nothing to do with Phoenix. 
I know there are some people who are using um, Vue with Phoenix successfully. Um, I've never been terribly happy with it. It's ultimately at the end of the day, I, I kind of it, it feels more natural, I guess, to have Vue in its own project. Yeah, that makes sense, especially given how like separated your code is. It's like, well, you might as well separate your front end from the back end. If the back end really isn't doing anything with the front end, then why even include it? Yep. Well, there's also two, um, and this this is really wonderful. When you accidentally the API server, but your view front end is still up. So from a customer standpoint, they'll just be like, "Oh, the data is not loading," instead of "Hey, the whole site's down." You know. Yeah, yeah. There's a big difference between getting you know 502 gateway not found or whatever versus just a loading thing for five seconds. So, but speaking of the front end a bit, are you actually using any of uh, Phoenix's like WebSocket features in this project or no? Um, we have talked about it. We currently the the platform doesn't need WebSockets. Um, it eventually might. I don't know. It's tough to say. We so really the big thing right now when you import your contacts, um, depending upon how many that there are, it could be a couple minutes before your import's effectively done. Because we, we take the file right away, but there's there's a lot of internal processes that need to run in order to, to figure out what it needs to do with the data. So we might eventually implement WebSockets just as a way to like display a banner that says, hey, your import finished, you know, stuff like that. But it's nothing really, I guess, mission critical to the, to the platform. So right now with the current solution, if someone were to import a whole bunch of them, do they just not see anything for like two minutes or is there just like a like a static flash message or something like that well yeah so we we display a banner that says like hey check back in a few minutes for all your contacts um obviously when they join the platform if they were invited to a team and they join that team immediately they'd be able to see contacts that are you know part of their team's network that actually is an important distinction to make um, because i guess i didn't cover it when you when you join a team and you see all of your friends' contacts, you can't actually see their information. You can just see how well the person knows the contact. And that... Like, yeah. sorry just to interrupt, but like the how well is what? Is that just like a number score? Yeah, just from zero to a hundred. Like, how well do you know them? And it's it's literally, it's based on how much um, how much information and what kinds of information you import regarding that contact. So things like phone numbers, you know, all of that factors in and we have our own custom algorithm of like, okay, well this person probably knows this person really well. So let's assign them like a hundred for instance. Right. So you're doing like a lot of work in the background. Is that fair to say? Like, you know, outside the request response cycle? Yeah, no, it's, it, it is quite the pipeline. Um, Cause ultimately at the end of the day, everybody has duplicates in their contact data and obviously you don't want them. Um, our system is getting better over time. We've, we've got a bunch of different deduplication algorithms uh, with plans for even many more. Obviously all of those incur costs when you import data. So I could, I could see it being like 10 minutes for an import to finish um, down the road if we're doing some really advanced stuff on it. But it just is what is. It's it's ultimately at the end of the day. Do you want good data or not? And good data takes time. Yeah. So for handling those jobs in the background, did you write your own solution, or are you using like a third party like job queuing library? Yeah. So we we use RabbitMQ. Um, 
under the hood for all of that. So we we ran into an interesting case where um, in all of in all of our services that we run, we run three replicas of each just for high availability. We we try to stay in three different availability zones. Um, but when contact importer would talk out to contact manager, obviously it's only talking to one of those three replicas. And really you don't want to do all of the all of the processing on that one single container. Like that that's pretty rough. So we we created a pipeline that effectively just emits events to Rabbit, which then immediately loop back to um, handlers that we have on the different replicas of contact manager. And so each of the three replicas are doing data processing as it goes. And so it, it speeds things up overall. Obviously we had to up our Neo4j server um, to make it beefier and you know run things faster. But especially with Elixir and having three different replicas running, you can end up with some pretty fast import times. Nice. So you mentioned replicas, and I you kind of hinted at maybe using Google Cloud for this. Is that uh, what you're using for your hosting provider or no? Yep, that is correct. Okay. So I guess before we get into that, do you kind of just want to maybe unwind a little bit more about your tech stack? So we know Neo4j, Elasticsearch, Postgres, RabbitMQ, Phoenix, and Elixir. Like, are you using like Docker in development or no? So using Docker in production, um, I've been meaning to to work more towards um, using Docker locally. Sometimes it makes sense for like, oh, I need to spin up a Neo4j instance or things like that. But um, yeah, cur- currently our, our dev process, we literally run IEX-S mix like five times if you want the entire cluster up locally. I'm surprised no one has made a bash script for that one. <laughs> I don't know. Is what is. I I have like this Zen because I I use Vim and Tmux for everything. So you know, come into the office in the morning, open up a window for the first project, pull and run. Open up a window for the second one. I'll just like set it up, and I'm like, yes, I'm good to go. Are are the other developers like that too, or no? Oh, they just leave their shells running all the time. Basically, I I have a weird thing that I I really like to shut down my computer in the evenings because I I just don't want it always running. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, I don't shut my computer off really ever unless I'm like going on vacation because I just have a desktop. But you can be sitting here with like 16 gigs of memory or even like 32 gigs. And it's like, I still have this thing where I just close down programs when I'm done using them. Even though I can have like, you know, 7,000 copies of Vim open, I just still close them down. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works. Yeah, no, it's 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 always been rough when like you, you disconnect from a TMUX session and then you forget that it's running. It's like, oh, I've had Postgres running this whole time when I didn't need to. That definitely happens. So in development then, no Docker, but in production, yes. So how are you running these things in production? Yeah, so we, we use a self-managed Kubernetes cluster. Um, there was talk early on about using GKE or the, the Google managed version. And it ultimately come down or came down to, I want more control over it. <laughs> so I, I am the leading Kubernetes expert in the company right now. Um, honestly, our setup works. So we we have three uh, two core master nodes, three two core worker nodes, and then like um, additional servers for Neo4j and Elasticsearch. Those actually aren't part of Kubernetes, but all of our Elixir services that we run are. 
seems to work really, really well for us. Um, I've, I've got maintenance scripts that I, I use all the time. I'm, I'm constantly tweaking the cluster and, you know, improving things and adjusting the auto scalers and all that. It's been, it's been really wonderful for us. We, for the longest time, um, we were using bare metal distillery deployments that were scripted, not, not for six DOS, but in prior projects that we've worked on. And then eventually we migrated to Docker Swarm because, uh, hey, why not Dockerize these things? That was pretty fantastic. Uh, but then Kubernetes was just like, I guess, the final evolution of this journey. And ever since we fully migrated to it, we, we haven't looked back. Nice. So I don't think that many people end up rolling their own like self-managed Kubernetes because, I don't know, it gets this bad rap of like, oh, it's so hard to set up. Like, how was that process for you? Yeah, no, it's absolutely terrifying to set up. <laughs> Not gonna lie. Yeah. It um. So they they've gotten better over time. Um, it's all the the cube ADM um, alpha commands and stuff. They they at least have CLI commands now that allow you to do tasks that you used to have to do from scratch. Um, and those were awful. That was actually one of the big reasons because we we didn't fully fully um. Uh, jump into Kubernetes for everything um, until midway through 2019. But a big part of that was the CLI commands finally becoming available to be able to do tasks that you need to do. So did it just go from like crazy hard to set up to now pretty like manageable if you really put in the work? Yeah, pretty much. Like I, cause I've, I've been, I guess on the Kubernetes radar for, I don't know, this. Actually, it might be since 2016. Um, it's one of those things where every every couple months you would check in on it and be like, okay, what's the status of this project? Because obviously you don't want to use something like super, super alpha for your deployments. But yeah, it'd be like bop in, you know, work around with it, be like, okay, cool. Um, I don't know. It Docker, Docker Swarm definitely made it a lot easier, I guess, to understand Kubernetes deployments. It's really... That's the thing. Dockerizing your application is half the battle. If you haven't done that before, then you you have really no hope of using Kubernetes effectively. But um, once once you're able to do that, then it's literally just learning the deployment best practices of. And that's what's so weird about Kubernetes. It's hard because managing clusters is hard. Like it just it always will be. Um, but really, uh, all of the all of the little pieces that they have within Kubernetes, over time you start to realize, hey, that's actually the best way to do things. So that makes sense why it's in there. And then once you know it, it just becomes second nature to you almost. Yeah, that's very well put, especially about like just the dockerizing is half the battle. Because I think a lot of people, they just think like, oh, well, Kubernetes is the magic bullet. I just install it, do something, click a button, and now it's like, I'm at web scale. But meanwhile, it's like, yeah, there's like a million app decisions that you need to make to even get to the point where you can like run your app in Kubernetes in a way that makes sense. Like if you're dealing with file uploads, like suddenly you can't just write that to disk, like that needs to go somewhere else. And there's like, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, there was um, the other day, um, one of us made, made a deployment that, or a deployment update that entered a crash back off loop or something. Um, it was running for a little bit, eventually started maxing out the CPU on the worker. That's the other thing too. When, when Erlang VMs boot, they consume a lot of resources. 
It's for a brief a brief amount of time, but they do. And then if you throw it in a crash back off loop, you're doing that over and over and over again. It's like, nah, that's not good. Somehow, though, we threw the worker into an invalid state. And so I'm, I'm freaking out because those pods aren't resolving, you know, and it seems like the service is down or something. And then magically five minutes later, Kubernetes quarantines it. Everything comes back up and it's working perfectly fine. Wow. And all that happens due to the configuration that you set up beforehand to do that type of workflow. Well, Kubernetes itself defaults to five minutes. So if it if it thinks the the host is, you know, something's going wrong, then if it doesn't hear hear back for five minutes, it's all like, okay, you're dead. Let's reschedule these pods somewhere else. Right. But what happens if it can't reschedule it somewhere else? So we'll just ultimately try again on the same thing, but five minutes later. How does that work? Um, as far as I know, it does not try to reschedule um, unless unless the pod itself does start reporting healthy. Um, it does it does quarantine it, which in our in our case um, we had basically a, a runaway load average. I couldn't even shell into the server to figure out what was going on. I had to uh, had to reboot it from the the G Cloud site, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it it recovered itself like that's. That was the beauty of it. By by quarantining it, the cubelet was able to um, eventually just stop doing its thing. Um, it, there was very little involvement on my part, I guess, to resolve the problem. And that that's what makes Kubernetes so fantastic. Right. So it's like you're putting in the effort to set it up so you don't have to deal with things like that later when it actually counts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when things go wrong, it's like, oh man, you know, you don't you don't want to be the guy getting called at three in the morning because the servers are down. Yeah, no, that's that's always how it goes. It's like even if I'm not the guy on call for whatever reason, it seems like I'm somehow still involved in trying to fix the problem. Yeah, earlier you mentioned you were like the lead ops guy, so you're definitely somewhere in the chain. Now you mentioned that these servers, you said two CPU cores each for those. Yep, two two core, eight gig of RAM. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say like how much RAM on those bad boys, but so that's kind of a lot of RAM. Are, are you utilizing all of that for this application or no? No, not really. It, we like to over provision RAM um, just because there is a certain amount of um, overhead with Erlang VMs. Um, we found generally, I think it's between 50 and 150 meg per running pod. And that's just like base. We have the application running. I don't know. It's nice to throw a lot of RAM on there. Like, it also is like the the Google standard for a two core machine, so it seems to work pretty well for us. Isn't that awesome though? You get all of that for just like a hundred megs base, mm-hmm. and then I guess you have things set up to where it's like, if uh, if Kubernetes did need to scale it out or whatever, you can end up like running multiple pods on the one box. Yeah, since you have that that much RAM extra. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So we, we do have an interesting case with that auto-scaling, and this is actually a problem that I'm working on right now. So we, we have horizontal pod auto-scalers set up for all of our Elixir projects, but um, in a multi-node environment, because we, we have all of our pods, well, within one service, each of those pods are linked together. We don't link together all of our Erlang VMs, but we do link the individual services. So each of the each of the pods, you know, know about each other. Um, the problem with pod autoscalers is that you have to run an odd number of pods, at least in our setup, but I have not figured out how to do that yet with an autoscaler. Because um, we, run, we run by default three pods all the time per service, but 
If it scales up, it needs to be five. If it scales down, it needs to be one. Otherwise, you'll end up with like potential split brain going on, which that's that's terrifying. Yeah, it has it has a very interesting algorithm um, for how it calculates how many pods that it needs to create. So it can actually react if you suddenly get like a maxed out CPU load spike. It effectively takes the velocity of that and knows like, hey, I should probably scale up more pods than just one, you know, for instance, to handle the load. And then it'll do that. And then 30 seconds later, it'll check and be like, okay, loads now average this way. It's it's very, very intelligent with how it works. Yeah, that sounds really cool. So when it comes to this, though, like, let's say we didn't really talk about your deployment process yet, but are you doing some type of like a like a rolling restart then when you do deploy? Yep, absolutely. So um, definitely we, we always make sure, obviously, keep at least one pod running at a time, but it's it's definitely rolling deployments for everything. Right. But what would happen, though? I don't know if, if this is a handled case, but let's say that someone is importing their context and, you know, it's taking like a couple of minutes to do the work and you do a rolling restart and then the one worker that was doing that work happens to be the one that goes down. Do you have anything in place to like drain that before it goes down or like stall the deployment for a bit? Yeah. So there, um, there's two parts of the pipeline that can be difficult. So the actual file upload in the case of like a, a V card iCloud kind of import. Um, if you're literally in the process of uploading that file, then yeah, if that, if that container shut off, that would be really bad. Um, but Assuming you have uploaded the file, um, the way we use RabbitMQ, and at least as far as acknowledging our messages and all of that, we can do deployments right in the middle of all of our fancy uh, deduplication algorithms. Because literally, unless you acknowledge the 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 message on RabbitMQ, it will just re-deliver it again. And we've actually uh, designed our entire database to be idempotent such that you can run the same actions over and over again and you still end up in the same final result for your contact data oh nice so it's almost like uh you know like what i guess phoenix migrations do right yeah no yeah absolutely it took a took a lot of architecture to get it that way um honestly we (laughs) we rewrote the whole like import pipeline probably four times until we you know settled on a solution that we liked do you find that to be like a common pattern for you guys to like, cause I know for me personally, I always write something and then oftentimes like a couple days will pass, you know, if it's a small thing. And then I look back at it and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And then I just rewrite it again and again, and then it gets to be decent by maybe the third time. Yeah. I think the big thing for us in this problem um, was that bolt sips was timing out randomly and that kept throwing wrenches into our pipeline. So Basically, if you query too much data at any given time, you're at risk of a timeout. If you fire off too many queries at a given time, you're at risk of a timeout. So, yeah, it, it was rough. And that's ultimately why we ended up going with RabbitMQ um, to try to, like, distribute that load across all of the worker connections um, on each of the containers that we're running. I don't know. I we, we have a pretty good setup now, I think. it's uh, I'm really happy with it. The early versions, not so much. Well, and the earlier versions led to what you have now, so success. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe now, do you want to just talk a little bit about uh, your deployment process? Like, let's say you're just, you want to ship a new version up, you're on your dev box. Like, how does that actually get up there running on the uh, Kubernetes cluster? 
Yeah, sure. Um, so we use a self-hosted GitLab instance for all of our stuff. And so we have full automated CI. Um, we use GitLab's Docker registry that comes built in with it. So at least as far as that half of the pipeline, um, you know, your MR gets merged. We, we have some very specific setup that we keep a version file in each of our project projects. And then we reference that version in both the mix EXS and the scripts that tag the Docker image. So that's a good way to keep it consistent across the whole thing. But so we literally, you know, you merge to master, CI runs, it builds the image, it publishes it. Then on the other side, we use a service called Keel for Kubernetes, which will pull a Docker registry for you. And if you configure it correctly, it will just auto deploy the new version following, I guess, the semantic versioning rules that you want. So you can have it, you know, deploy everything or just auto-deploy minor updates, which that's what we use by default. Um, you can also set the number of approvals that you want. So say you need, like, three people to approve it before it goes to prod. Well, you set it to three, and then everybody's got to go to the site and, you know, click the thumbs up. And once it re meet, or meets the appropriate number of approvals, then it just begins the rolling uh rolling deployment on the cluster it's it saved us a lot of time um we before we found keel we were just deploying kubernetes manifest by hand and that got really really tedious right what did that involve per kubernetes cluster we keep a git repo of all of the kubernetes config stuff we use Helm uh, for some things, but not mission critical things. That's really important. I, I'm not really a big fan of Helm, honestly. I would rather just keep a repository of all of your configuration all in one place. But so for us, like if anytime you wanted to deploy by hand, you would have to pull that repo, make sure you got the version number right on the file, and then update the update the uh, deployment by applying the the config file which that was also prone to mistakes people would get wrong version numbers and then pull the wrong image or maybe not even pull an image at all it was it was just kind of a mess and uh keel definitely helped that yeah that seems pretty uh scary when so many user errors can happen because i've had setups where even just like get tagging a release to push some code up it's like whoops i just made a typo in the number yeah human errors happen <laughs> yep. all the time so during that deployment process, you mentioned, you know, maybe maybe it needs a couple of people to accept it before it goes live and they do the thumbs up. You're talking about on GitLab's merge request page, right? Um, or no? No, actually. So we, um, I mean, there's, there's few enough people working on the project. Um, generally, if one other person, so it's, it's obviously like you don't, you don't merge in your own merge requests, but as far as code review, anybody in the office can review somebody else's MR. Obviously that, that frees both me and my business partner up if we're, you know, tied up doing other things, but yeah, it's really, um, so you review the MR, you merge it, but as far as the thumbs up thing, that's actually part of Keel. It's got an approvals page, um, that it'll show like, these are the pending deployments that I think should be deployed. Do you give it a thumbs up? And then you can see like the, the vote totals. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Because, yeah, I've never used that service before. In the back of my head, I'm like, is he talking about GitLab or some crazy Kubernetes thing? But now it's some crazy Kubernetes thing. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, it's really interesting. There's there's a lot of different ways to auto-deploy to Kubernetes. Um, 
keel keel for us seems to be the most lightweight um i think uh what is it chart museum if you really wanted to build helm charts for everything like you could use chart museum to to manage and deploy i guess you could also do like custom kubernetes operators if you wanted to go that route but then it gets a little complicated now uh one thing we didn't talk about i guess well two things so first um how do you like i guess kubernetes is managing your secrets with like some environment variables like how do you set those up yeah, so it's it's bad. Hate to admit it, we do keep secrets in the config repo, but at the very least, we very tightly control access to that repo. So it just is what is. We we have on our radar to eventually um, migrate to Vault for all of our secrets management. The interesting thing about um, Kubernetes secrets in general, if you have cluster admin access or at least high enough permissions in the namespace that has the secret it doesn't really matter anyway because you can still look at that secret and so they just yeah it it, honestly at the end of the day it's it's not that bad to just keep things in a in a strictly controlled repository and it makes configuration a lot easier too um when we're doing that but definitely vault vault would be the best thing to do long term it's just kind of it's you know it's its own ecosystem that we have to learn uh we would definitely self-host it there'd be a lot of servers too we'd have to bring up for it but it's on the roadmap just eventually yeah that's always like a tricky decision right it's like you only have limited development time it's like well do you work on the six degrees site writing features or do you work on better secret management that no user is really gonna you know notice that much yeah, no, and it's it's good too. Um, the the founder of Sixdos is his name's Ethan Francis, and he he is a wonderful guy. Um, he's worked in software sales in the past. He's really friendly with developers. He knows he knows what developers want, and so he doesn't ask like the most unreasonable things. And there's also too like when there's been times when I'm all like, hey, I really need to do this thing on the cluster. Like we should prioritize it this week. And he's like, yeah, sure, why not? And I'm like, yes, being able to do my job. <laughs> yes, that is a good thing. Yeah. Now, uh, just to rewind a little bit, I don't think we really talked about like SSL certificates and stuff like that. Like, how do you have that handled on the cluster? Yeah, so we we use Cert Manager for everything now, basically. Yeah. It. So we when we first started migrating into Kubernetes um, for other projects. We were still doing SSL termination uh, manually. So we'd have like a, a bare bones Nginx running with a bunch of custom like scripts that I wrote to synchronize all the let's encrypt certs to the other load balancers. Basically, all of that was a mess. I knew the system really well. Nobody else did. So <laughs> I kind of ended up being the guy who was doing SSL certificates. But once we finally figured out how to set up cert manager get it working and all that and plus too like cert manager has gotten more stable um a lot more stable over the past year but once we switched to it now it works great you just define your your ingress and then magically you have an ssl certificate right so you're like you're serving that certificate from the load balancer on Kubernetes, I guess, right? Yeah, we we also, too, we run everything behind Cloudflare and we keep the proxy on. Um, so technically, technically, I guess the cert's not required, but it is really nice to have it. It's just best practice. So Now, the other thing I wanted to mention before, when I said two things and we talked about secret management, how do you deal with uh, doing database migrations with that like automated deployment? Because that's always a tricky problem, right? It's like, well, 
do you want to do it on every deploy? But what about migrations that may take an hour and you want downtime? Like, you know, how do you deal with all of that? Um, well, the way it works in our system, so we actually do run migrations on, the, on every deploy. We made a custom task that is part of our um, application children list at boot time. It's like one of the very last things to run. But so it, it literally, anytime the application boots, it will attempt to run migrations. And if there's any pending ones, then, you know, it runs them. We, we have a deployment style such that um, we could easily be deploying to production, I don't know, 20 or 30 times in a day. It's not unheard of, especially earlier on in development. But we, we generally, we try to get features out the door as quickly as possible. Um, I guess with the exception of like maybe the bigger types of issues, um, you know, things like some core architecture work, like that might take a little bit longer, but features themselves, like they're, they're constantly flying out the door. That's cool. So I haven't heard of that yet. I mean, so you're actually running these migrations as part of like the app boot up process, like totally outside the scope of your Kubernetes scripts or anything. Yeah, you, you don't really have access to mix tasks or it's not like you can just do mix run or I guess mix ecto.migrate, for instance, in a um, production deployment. We we use Alpine images as our Docker base image. This is this is so cool how I set it all up. So we're using Bitwalker's Alpine Elixir Phoenix image to do all of the compiling. And if it happens to be a Phoenix project, which um, or a Phoenix project with assets, uh, which we've done for like corporate websites and stuff, it has all the the node stuff installed, so it can you know generate all that. But then we use the multi-stage builds in Docker such that we take all of that compiled stuff and we copy it into a raw Alpine, I think it's Alpine 3.9 is what we're using. Just copy all that in and then just run the binary and things are great. But you obviously can't run mixed tasks in that kind of environment. So that's, that's why we had to effectively in-house it more into code and make it part of like our application boot. We, we do a lot of like diagnostic tasks and stuff too. Um, you know, just things, things that are useful to have within a code base if you shell in and you want to like get some information about what's going on. Right. So you have the power to do all that just like, but it was stuff you had to write to get that. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, I mean, it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. It's you, you know, you find yourself repeating the same patterns over and over and you refine your process as time goes on. I've, always had this philosophy that you should define or design software like a spaceship. And I learned this because I, I watch a lot of sci-fi shows. And so imagine like you're on a spaceship and there's like a problem in the engine room. Well, there was a diagnostic on the ship that told the person there was a problem in the engine room. We kind of do that in software, but we don't, I don't think we do it enough necessarily. It's like write code to boost developer debug productivity almost and granted yeah we use uh, prometheus and grafana for metrics and we use Sentry for error reporting but at the end of the day if you want to diagnose like why is this user account weird if you have a nice little task that will like walk the database and look for any weird user accounts like that that's pretty useful so just to like clarify like weird like, what would that mean? Like, what, what does this task actually look for that might be out of... It would be things like the user might just be missing. Um, we've run into that a couple times where a, a RabbitMQ event 
like <laughs> we botched it for whatever reason not really sure what happened but a user that was created an account manager didn't get propagated to contact manager correctly contact manager actually does have to maintain its own database of user accounts because that's how it links teams together and stuff to figure out like you know who knows who and who belongs on what team so between that custom task and tasks that you have and uh, Sentry and all that stuff, you found no problems coming to conclusions to whatever errors that your system had? Yeah, I mean, obviously some problems might be harder than others, but it's generally pretty easy to figure out. Yeah, I don't know. There's some like quote around that, right? It's like figuring out what's wrong is hard, but like once you know the actual problem, the solution is usually like, duh, okay, it's like this two line fix or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've had a big thing too, um, refining our API error response structure because I'm the type of guy who like Google's best practices nonstop because it's like, you know, you have to figure out the right way to do this. For whatever reason, the community, nobody agrees on how API JSON errors should be formatted. Like there's, there's some um, specs, I guess, but they're not. They either don't feel right or they were kind of meant to solve a different problem. And so, I mean, we've, we've got our own like custom kind of payload structure now that works well for view front ends, but I still feel like it could be made even better. It's just, I I don't know what that would look like necessarily. And obviously it has impacts too on internal microservices and how they communicate because ideally it would all kind of be the same structure. Yeah. It sounds like one of those things where it's like, you know, you seem pretty comfortable in rolling your own stuff. So it's like whatever solution you arrive at will probably be like the best practice for your app. Yeah, probably at the end of the day. it's in- And then you can make a post about it somewhere and people will either stab you with a pitchfork or be like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm excited like the, especially within Elixir because it's, it, the community is still young enough. Like there's, there's going to be best practices that we haven't, thought of yet you know things that wouldn't make sense in erlang but they would make sense in elixir and then people will start to write you know packages and frameworks and everything else and it's going to be an exciting time yeah no i'm really excited to see where things go and that's the cool thing too right it's like what we have today right now is totally fine to build real applications upon but it's like the future is only going to get brighter Mm -hmm. absolutely that's why for those who aren't doing open source right now, um, absolutely hop on the train, be making open source packages. Um, I actually, so I, I wrote uh, Pigeon back in, was it 2015? Yeah, it was a long time ago. But basically way back when we needed iOS and Android push notifications for our um, Elixir servers, but there wasn't a package yet. So I wrote one and now it's like, now it's like the go-to push notification library for Elixir, which, yeah, go figure. So is that your most popular open source work? Currently, yeah. I mean, we've we've got several open source projects, but I guess that that is our biggest. I think we are about to crack a half million downloads. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is a lot. What does that translate to? Like, not that it really matters, but like GitHub stars or something like that. Uh, actually, it was funny. I checked it the other day and we had 420 stars. Uh-huh. One, of our, nice. one of our employees is laughing. It's like, yeah, is what is. No, that, that's a healthy uh, project for sure. Now, speaking of the opposite of healthy, so now that your app is up and running and everything is a little good, what have you done to like plan for disasters and unexpected events like database backups and all that type of stuff? Mm-hmm. Like what happens? 
Yeah, so we we take hourly backups of all of our Postgres's and um, our Neo4j. I think that is a reasonable risk mitigation. Um, Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're dealing with contact data. So if we lose a little bit of it, that's actually not that bad in reality. Because especially, too, you got to remember all of these users have their contact data like they bring it to our system to import so you know if for some reason they could just import again and things would work totally fine um that said we haven't had any catastrophic issues yet uh let me knock on wood hold up yeah it um yeah really hourly backups are are totally fine um obviously there's been a lot of kubernetes configuration uh as far as availability tweaking the, the pod autoscalers have helped a lot. It's funny, like Kubernetes itself, if you just leave it to the defaults, it will not necessarily do what you expect, which it makes sense for defaults, but it, a lot of times people have this idea of what Kubernetes should be, but they don't know that they need to configure it first to do that. Interesting, because that's almost like the opposite of what you would expect. Like you would expect the default to do what it you would expect it to do so you don't have to configure it <laughs> it's weird well yeah so like imagine you had a deployment that was only running one pod and you update that deployment without any other configuration it will immediately kill the first pod but then you'll have a delay before the second one comes online so it's like hey i took my server down and didn't didn't plan for it right yeah now maybe what server is going down do you have any like stories where you had to deal with needing to implement rate limiting on the spot due to like DDoSs or you know other types of attacks or rate limiting problems? Um, we have not been DDoSed yet, thankfully. Um, it's funny you ask because we <laughs> literally over the past couple weeks we've been implementing rate limiting into our services. So there, there's a funny thing: um, remote IPs are relatively hard to configure or at least to pass them into the Elixir containers. Um, Because when you think about it, it's really sitting behind multiple proxies at the end of the day. Uh, We were able to figure out, though, that Cloudflare sets the CF connecting IP header on it, which is really, really nifty. Uh, We're able just to pass that in so we can do effective rate limiting, IP-based rate limiting in our containers. And then obviously, if you're an authenticated user, you do the, you know... um, user id based rate limiting but yeah it's it's an ongoing process um all of that should be finishing up next week i believe all of the rate limits so i guess if you're going to ddos us you've got you know less than a week right yeah that's cool though because that's one of those things that a lot of people don't account for even myself included with some apps where it's like you know what do you do if someone just wants to send you like hundred thousand requests per second you know what are you going to do but it's so hard to optimize for that because that's not like an easy problem to solve at all. Yeah, because I was looking at like Twitter's API limits and I think it's uh, 180 requests every 15 minutes or something, which that, that seems really low to me, but maybe that actually makes a lot of sense. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what scale they're running on exactly, but you know, if they're multiplying that out by like tens of millions of people, it's probably dealing with a lot on their end. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, if something goes you know, bad with the site for some reason. Do you have any notifications set up to where like you get notified? Like, Hey, the site's down now I get emailed or a Slack message or whatever. Yeah. So it's like a, it's like a bomb going off in my, uh, digital life. I guess I get an email, a text, a Slack message and a discord message. 
Oh man. So if your if your phone or whatever makes like eight beeps in two seconds, you know yeah. something went bad. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. And even too, we've got um we use uptime robot just as like a second sanity check. Um so that'll start notifying us too. I've even thought about like recording a, an audio message or something and having it call me if, you know, things things go seriously wrong. But yeah, it, fortunately when those kinds of situations have happened, uh, for the most part, I've been at work. There was um, there was a really funny, um, it was for a different project we were doing. Um, yeah, I guess it was early last year. We, uh, my, so my birthday is at the end of the month. Um, and so I went, I went camping for my birthday last year and my business partner came with me and we were hung over 6 a.m. Sunday morning our G cloud free credit expired, uh, for the cluster that we had set up for this client and they had demos later that day, but they literally G cloud just turned the servers off at 6am on a Sunday. And we were in the middle of the woods, like both of us, fortunately we had our other employees like help us out and re reboot the servers and stuff. But that, that was pretty much about worst case scenario. You can imagine as a business owner and, you know, getting a call from the client being like, Hey, what happened to the servers? Yeah. Yeah. That's rough. It's funny that you mentioned uptime robot too. Not too many people know of that service for some reason. And, uh, it's really good. Like I, I've been using it for a while as well. I don't know if you're using their free plan or whatever, but what do they give you? Like 20 dashboards or something like every five minutes they'll ping your site. Oh yeah. 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 We use the free plan. It's, it's been on my list for a long time because uptime robot is not a hard service to create. You know, I could very easily write like an internal company dashboard that would do it, but it seems like I never, I never get around to it, even though it's been on my list for so long. Yeah. It's kind of weird, right? When it gets to those type of services, like I trust myself sort of to write okay-ish code, but it's like kind of nice to have another independent company, independent platform, independent network doing that versus like your own status page that might even break. Speaking of status pages, like that page as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we were we were using Datadog um, early on in our company's life, which I mean that's fantastic service. Um, we've seen plenty of clients who prefer Datadog, and so they they go with that, you know, for their for their monitoring. Um, the only reason we switched off was because we realized like, hey, we can do all of this with Prometheus and Grafana, you know. Once you get it configured and everything, it's just, it just kind of manages itself almost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a cool setup. So speaking of like maybe other SaaS tools, we kind of didn't go into that. Are you using anything besides those? Um, so we are using Timber for logging. Um, we used to use it for uh, many more projects, but it's, I don't know, there's, especially my business partner, he's had issues with the web platform before. It doesn't log correctly or something. It's interesting. Um, we, we obviously still use it for 6DOS because it's nice to have. I am looking into open source alternatives like Greylog and there's a couple others. Is it Jaeger? I think so. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll we'll eventually figure out a solution for that because I logging's like the final piece that I don't manage myself. Granted, I use a, a nice little utility called Stern that if I want to see all of the pod logs for a deployment, I can just run Stern with a command. And then I'm magically seeing three different Elixir containers all aggregating their logs on my screen. So that's pretty handy, but uh, that is nice. So, do you actually run that from like a jump box or from your own dev box? Yeah, no, it's just from my from my development machine. 
Okay. Yeah. So the way the way Kubernetes configs are set up, um, you treat them almost like SSH keys in a way. So you know you keep your you keep your cluster access on on your machine. It's like that is your file, and that's how you get access. So I do pretty much all of my Kubernetes management from command line. Yeah, it works, and uh, I know I haven't used them myself, but doesn't Kubernetes also have like some like web UI you could also maybe use as well? Yeah, they do. I I tried it out. Wasn't necessarily a fan. Uh, we also tried out WeaveScope, um, which WeaveScope is beautiful, but it's also like the most resource-intensive monitoring dashboard you could install. We were using literally a third of one of our worker instances nonstop just to run WeaveScope, which, yeah, yeah so a third, a third of a two-core machine is like, you know, I guess a sixth of a core constantly. It's like, no, it's, 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 not, it's not worth it. Yeah, it's like that running joke, right? It's like the monitoring tools you have will just like blow up your whole system when it shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, no, it's 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 been a balancing act because I I like to play around with monitoring tools, but I have to make sure that I clean them up after the fact. Otherwise, it's bad. So we're kind of wrapping up here at the end. What would you say like some of your best tips and lessons learned are from running this application? Um, that's a that's a good question. Obviously, our architecture style has worked really, really well. Um, as far as our container deployments and everything like it, it just feels like the right way to do this project. And so, I mean, really for, for anybody listening, it's, um, if you're using umbrellas, if you like them, then by all means, keep using them. Personally, I would recommend stop though. Like don't be afraid to break up your code into multiple repositories. It's totally doable. I forget, is it Overmind? It's one of the guys on Elixir Forum. He has this this thing that he actually imports other repos as dependencies into a top-level project. I don't know. That might be a strategy. I've never tried it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I would say don't use umbrellas, but also don't design monoliths. Just like break up your code in logical ways, and you'll be much, much happier for it. Nice. Yeah, that is definitely good advice. And, and maybe for people... Who are not quite ready to break that up, would you say it's a good idea to at least use context for now until they're ready to start breaking up? Yes. Yes. Contexts are wonderful. That is that is the natural segue into to service um, separation. Yeah. And so that idea of like, you know, DDD, triple D was pretty new to me when I started with Elixir. It was a pretty big hurdle to start thinking about that stuff. But now that I am, I'm really thankful that, and it's so funny, it's not even like an official framework feature. It's just like, by the way, you should organize your code like this, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a good idea, but you don't have to. And But uh, yeah, I'm happy that it pushed me in that direction. Yeah, no, it's we, we all as developers, we're, we're getting better over time. I have, I have high hopes. There's, there's a story I always like to tell. There was one time we were consulting with a construction company. And so we were, we're talking to them. We're like, Hey, yeah, we charge hourly. And they're all like, Oh, we only do like flat fee contracts. And I was like, Oh, how come? And the guy told me, so whenever they're bidding on a job, they know exactly how long the job is going to take exactly how much the job is going to cost. And then literally it just becomes like a, a bidding war for, you know, what are the tightest margins you can do for that job? And it made me realize it's like, wow, what if, what if you could do that for software? You know, cause it's like the end of the day, ultimately none of us know how long a job's going to take. We don't know how much it's going to cost. Like we get better at it over time. But when you think about it, people have been doing construction for thousands of years. People have only been programming for, 
what, the last 70, roughly. So there's a lot of room to grow here. And I think there are best practices that we will figure out. And Triple D is, I, I think, one of them on the path. We will eventually figure out how to write great software. Right. The only thing we need to worry about is like, will it happen in our lifetime or 500 years from now? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but AI will probably have taken over everything by that point. <laughs> then code won't even exist. <laughs> and on that note, Henry, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, it was great being here. So uh, before we call it quits here, do you want to share maybe some links to your site, your consulting company, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that? Um, yes, absolutely. So our website is www.codedge.io. And so that is codeedge.io and the E is shared. If you just Google CodeEdge, we're the first result. Our GitHub is codeedge-llc also very very easy to find we have it linked on our website so if you can get to our website it's you can see all of our social accounts and everything else too cool sounds good awesome yeah thank you so much this has been a wonderful time talking no problem anytime and on that note to everyone listening thanks for tuning in and i'll see you in the next one you've been listening to the running in production podcast you can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com also don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.